Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport, music, and business. We deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class performers to create growth and optimize business. I'm Noel Allnut, the CEO of Securo, and today I'll be talking to AFL Hall of Famer Paul Ruse. Moving from strength to strength in an overtly physical world, Paul dominated on and then off the field as a coach. He has taken that winning attitude and passion for leadership to the corporate world, where he's helping organizations gain a competitive advantage by creating a high-performance mindset within their working culture. Building Resilience Podcast. Paul Ruse, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Oh, no, it's great to uh, great to have a conversation. Um, I was just speaking to one of my colleagues, actually, and uh, he lives in Donvale, and he was like, see, I told you only, led, only legends come from Donvale. Uh, so uh, <laughs> so he was very happy about the conversation this morning. Um, Paul, what I'd love to start with is really uh, start at the start. Um, your career uh, has um, has gone has taken you all over the world and um, just uh, won so many things uh, and gained so much recognition um, in the AFL world. But I'd love to know how you went from um, playing AFL in the backyard or on the school pitch to playing for Fitzroy. Yeah, so I grew up in Donvale, as you sort of alluded to, and like every kid back in the sort of seventies, played a lot of different sports. Probably the two most the ones I loved the most were basketball and, and football. And then I played tennis as well. I played a lot of tennis. My parents were tennis players. And then you were you sort of zoned to a team. So it was really different back then. It wasn't like you sort of said, oh, I want to go and play for Fitzroy. Uh, yeah, if you're good enough, you're invited down. I think the first time I went to Fitzroy was an under-15 city versus country match. The, the, the city um, zone played the country zone. So that was my first interaction with anyone at Fitzroy. I was actually a Carlton supporter, but you knew that if you're good enough, you'd have to go to that particular club. Um, so I just got invited down the other 19s, and which was super exciting. You know, you get a taxi down, you play at the Junction Oval, training, taxi home, and then you play on the weekend. So it didn't have to go too far, really. Um, so that's really how it started. And then I guess it was, it was a bit like, you know, Darwin's survival of the fittest because there were so many players. You know, if you were good enough back then, there was no draft. Yeah, if you're good enough, you just keep going through the system and the weak sort of didn't survive and the strong seemed to hang on for as long as then you'd play seconds and then you'd play seniors. So it was actually a pretty good system. And I think, to be honest, it was a way better system back then than what it is now when you've got to pluck 70 or 80 kids from all around Australia and you've got to pick them at 17, 18 to come into an AFL system. So, yeah, the opportunity was there. It was exciting. And then I eventually played senior footy for Fitzroy. Nice. And what would you say defined you and your personality in your, in your teenage years that got you to rise to the top? Probably sort of self-awareness, I think. I think I, I was pretty good at knowing what I was good at. And I think that was really the key. I, I, you know, I was a pretty good athlete, but I wasn't the best athlete. I, was, I had pretty good skills, but I didn't have the best skills. But I think through my basketball, I had really good spatial awareness and really good understanding of the game. And I was super smart. I could, as in, not, not necessarily academically, but I could read the play really, really well. So I think if I look back now, you know, I was, a, as I said, a good good athlete. So I was, that, I was adequate at that. Yeah, good enough skills. But I think what allowed me to get to where I got to is just my ability to read the play and understand the game probably better than, you know, 90% of the players I played with or against. 
yeah, that ability to kind of see what somebody else doesn't see can, uh, especially at a young age, can really um, really set people apart. Um, and then, as you kind of played through your career, you obviously played with uh, with some great players. Um, is there anybody that stood out as a mentor um, or somebody that you looked to mirror in order to uh, to raise your own game? I think yeah, we talk about it a lot now the work that I do with performance by design. Every yeah, you know, when you come in an organisation, you're looking at role models. You know, whether it's an executive team, whether it's a leadership group at a footy club, and I was really lucky to have great mentors. You know, they, they were just really good people. Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, and the great thing about Fitzroy is all the best players seem to be the best blokes. You know, which was really and the hardest workers. You know, so you naturally gravitated to Gary Wilson because he was such a good person. So professional, such a good place. I was fortunate. I, I say that now at 59, having gone to Fitzroy in 1980. I'm so lucky that the mentors there were really good people. And I was just smart enough to go, okay, well, if that's good enough for our captain, Gary Wilson, then it's good enough for me because I'm nowhere near as talented as he is or Bernie Quinlan, who's won a Brownlow medal. So I'll just follow what they did and, as I said, I was really fortunate to have great mentors. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about replicating others' behaviour in that, in that, given that positive impact. We often talk about um, in our businesses around just the, if you have a look at the people that shine consistently, they're the people that do the basics, and they do the basics better than anybody else. They've learned those basics from somebody at some point in time, and it just about comes to to repetition. Um, Obviously, playing uh, in the eighties uh, for Fitzroy, uh, it must have been pretty, pretty tough going uh, for a young guy, a good up and comer. Um, any kind of tales of some setbacks or uh, being knocked around a bit? I just remember how tough it was. I, I remember my first practice game. Yeah, you know, I'm 16, I think, standing on the sideline, and yeah, you know, in those days you had 70 or 80 players, so you were able to play a couple of practice games. So it was blue versus red. So yeah, you know, teammates versus teammates. But this was my first initiation to the sort of senior footy. And I remember, yeah, well, I won't mention the players' names because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but player A gets tackled by his teammate, who happens to be on the other team that day. Umpire blows the whistle, free kick holding the ball. He won't give the ball back to him. And I'm like, <laughs> well, this, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. The other guy's trying to rip it off him, rip it off him. And he just punches him straight in the face. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm 16. I'm, I'm, I'm champion at the bit to get on. And then all of a sudden, one of the yeah blue teammates runs in to support. The guy gets punched in the head. He gets punched in the head as well by the same guy. And I think I learned really early. Like it, it's it's just it's tough. You know, I really believe it was you know as I said Darwin's theory of evolution. You know, in those days it was you know the, the resilient, the tough, the people that just kept on moving forward. And I, I could give you yeah ten ten. Um, instances of the teammates fighting at training. You know, so I realised pretty early that as good of people as they were, they were really good people. They weren't here to muck around, you know. And I remember my first game I played, Ron Alexander was the captain when I first arrived in my first year and I got picked for a pre-season game. And great fella, big, he's our ruckman, big guy, about six foot seven, six foot eight. And he walked up to me and he goes, oh, good luck, mate. He said, but I'll tell you what, if anything happens... He said, you're going to have to stand up for yourself, but I'll get there eventually. But if something happens, I'll come and help you. And I'm like, man, what's going on? What, what am I doing? I've just played in the Beverly Hills under 17 grand final against Heatherdale the year before. And I'm like, where, what are we doing? Sort of thing, you know? So, but again, it was, it was great. When I look back, it was a great grounding, you know, great teammates, great mentors and, and great advice, you know, stick up for yourself. I'll get there if I can help you young fella, but 
you know, you're going to have to look after yourself at some point. You mentioned something interesting at the beginning of the conversation that the way that it was in terms of kind of bringing people into the club, like in Fitzroy, and you felt it was better the way they used to do it than it is today. I often look at uh, people across businesses and other sporting codes, etc., and in the way that kind of you would have some mavericks come through, that seems to have kind of whittled out a little bit in, in business and also in sport, or you'd have people who might be, look, they'd probably be a bit of an outlier, a bit of a problem child today, but back then they, people could see the spark in them. What would you say is the biggest difference between the way that the grassroots of sport uh, and what we're teaching children and, and young people in sport back then versus what it is today? What would you say the fundamental difference is? I think winning and losing is big. I remember when we were coaching my boys and they were playing odds kick in Sydney and they're told not there's no scores. Like I was like... Yeah. What do you mean there's no scores? Life is not no scores. And and you don't reckon every kid knew who won it. Yeah, you know, I don't play the game at the end of the game. And Paul, Paul, who won? I go, oh, no, it was a draw. We won, we won. Yeah, I think that that's a big thing. You know, there's disappointment in life. You know, winning and losing is just part of life. So don't, taking away the scoreboard is really strange. I think the other one that I know is every kid played every sport. It's just too specialised now at too early an age. Now, I understand that for golf and tennis and and maybe things like that, but, yeah, I was really fortunate. I played a lot of basketball, a lot of tennis, a lot of football, obviously, and all those sports complement each other. But just the camaraderie and the community and, and everything doing that. And I think the third thing I already touched on, like, for instance, you know, going down to Fitzroy in the 19s, we would have had probably 50 players. Now, multiply that at 12, there's 12 teams, that's 500, 600 players that get a chance to go to an AFL club in those days. And then to your point, you had an opportunity to develop at your own rate. Now, if you're not a certain level at 17 or 18, yeah, there's a line go through you. So whether you're a late developer, yeah, as you said, you know, might you might have been a little bit wayward at 17, 18, you know, not necessarily taking your sport seriously, but you were talented enough to get through. Suddenly you got in a system, the system straightened you up, and then at 21 and 22, you became a superstar. You know, so they're, they're probably the main things I notice the differences between today and, and when I was growing up and, and playing sport and going to Fitzroy. Yeah, that that exclusivity in the way that uh, the way you have to join into the system and then you go through the process and that kind of sausage factory of talent spits out those those carbon copies. It is a bit of a shame because a lot can happen in the teenage years as a as a young woman or a young man, um, which can can deviate from where you have your focus. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of stories of people who were great up to eighteen and realised they wanted to be in the pub, and then all of a sudden at nineteen they're like, oh, it's not as quite as good as I thought it was going to be. I'm going to get back to sport but they can miss the boat in those in those critical junctions of, of going up to the next level speaking of going up to the next level going from Fitzroy into into Sydney in your career um, could you could you share with the audience what that was like obviously uh, getting up to Sydney and uh, and, and, and from being a, a local boy in uh, in Melbourne yeah I was tough initially because I always wanted to be a one-team player yeah it was really hard but the club itself without going to details was just a shadow of its former self when I decided to go. And then I hadn't spent a lot of time in Sydney. So I remember they invited me to come up and they put me in, I think it's the Hyatt that looks over the the, the opera house. I'm sitting there going, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> Roll out the red carpet. Yeah, and then Ronnie Joseph and Barass, Ronnie Barassi and, and Richard Collis came and picked me up and we, yeah, we had a really good conversation. And probably the thing that I really liked at 31 with, you know, married with one boy was just, 
the relative anonymity and just the ability to really focus on the game without the distractions of the media and and people telling you you should have done this, you could have done that, or whatever. That that was the thing that hit me. That you know, the, the, while Sydney were pretty pretty big, they weren't anywhere near as big as you know what a Collingwood or Carlton or any of the teams in Melbourne were. So I think that was the thing that I really enjoyed about Sydney. That you know, and living really close to the ground, living in you know really nice area. I mean, the city itself is beautiful. You know, you're living near amazing beaches. You know, Coogee Beach and Bronte Beach and and Bondi Beach, and then you're close to the city. But being at the SCG and then the, the stadium itself, so really fond memories. But really, yeah, really different from a football cultural point of view going to Sydney. How did you decide that you wanted to get into to management and leadership? Did you fall into it, or was it something that you thought about throughout your career? I think. I know I didn't, but I think when you're the captain of a club, you're, you're naturally thinking about leadership because you're captaining a club. Yeah, then when you're becoming a coach of a footy club, clearly leadership is huge and you're learning. So when I when we started Performance by Design with my three other partners, it was really on the back of all the learnings that I've that I've that I had in the you know, 40 years or whatever it was of, of playing and coaching football. So whilst I didn't make a conscious decision that I was ever going to start a leadership company. The learnings that you get through sport, and I worked most of the time. I worked up until I played for Sydney. So for the first 13 years, I was working as well. So it was probably more that, and I got asked a lot you know, about the, the Sydney system and about Melbourne and what we did there. And then I guess the natural progression was in sharing those experiences, putting in similar frameworks for companies, and I'm yeah, really enjoying being in the, in the corporate world now. Yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about that, um, looking at your performance by design. I see quite a few uh, previous sports professionals going into the business world and some in a consulting capacity and others into, it's normally sales roles, to be honest, right? Because you've been roughed around a bit and uh, you can you can take some winning and losing. But yeah, could you help me understand a bit more around performance by design and what you're looking to achieve with the businesses that you work with? Yeah, firstly, yeah, creating a really clear set of shared values and behaviours. It's really important. And it goes back to you know, the blood system when we created the blood system at, um, at Coffs Harbour. Yeah, getting a group of people being really clear on their purpose, their values. And most companies have that, but most companies don't delve in the behavioural space. What does honesty look like? What's the action below honesty? What's the action below integrity? What's the action below support? So we will really work closely in that area. We do a lot of profiling, understanding yourself and understanding your others in the context of the leadership team, which is really, really valuable. We, we build really strong relationships and under the surface, yeah, not, um, yeah, how did, how did Collingwood go this weekend or Sydney going to win? Getting to know each other on a really deep level, which strengthens our relationships. And then we teach people how to have yeah, you know, honest conversations. Yeah, you because know, if we care about each other and we're really clear on what those conversations are going to be and what we're going to have them, and we understand how to communicate because we've done the profiling, what makes you tick, what makes me tick, we can have a really high-performing, psychological safe environment where everyone wants to speak up, everyone feels part of a mission. So, yeah, in a in a one minute, two minute spiel, that's pretty much what we we do at Performance by Design. And what type of outcomes are, are you seeing when you go into a business and then you're kind of getting those shared values and, and looking at the systems? What does a kind of bit of a before and after look like in terms of the impact that uh, that you're seeing once that gets aligned? Because it's something close to my heart. Um, we've just done a merger of four organizations and um, very similar values slightly different cultures bringing it together over 12 months it's been one of the most rewarding but also challenging times in my career um, and I can kind of really clearly see of where we were 
nine months ago to where we are now. So what do you what do you typically see out there when you start getting all those areas firing? Well, on a, probably if I had to pick one, really honest and open conversations. We know when companies have you know, actioned their culture code, put in, you know, done a lot of work on profiling, the depth of their conversations compared to when we first started are quite dramatic. Yeah, that's probably the biggest thing where everyone feels safe, everyone feels like they're comfortable, whether it's you know, giving feedback to the CEO. A lot of it's positive too. It's not just, you know, it's not just room for improvements, but it's just the general feedback loop becomes a lot clearer in how people communicate with each other. Yep. Yeah, it, it's so important. If I, if I look at the challenges that we faced over the last twelve months, and across all, not just business, but you look at relationships, the the communication, 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 isn't it? You know, it's so it's typically a, a misunderstanding rather than a um, than than anything uh, untoward that typically happens across across these things. Of so getting that getting that team spirit right, that you can just open the kimono and talk about anything, really does help. Yeah, and I think you're right, and because of the disconnection. One of the big things we're seeing in the corporate world is people are now starting to get back together. Yeah, so it's a really good time to just, as you said, like whether you're merging with another company, it's a really good time to reaffirm your values, your purpose, your mission, your behaviours. Get everyone back. There's been a lot of changes in a lot of people moving companies as well. So it's a really good time to reset your business, build really strong relationships, and then just start that process again. We're going to have some really honest conversations. So we're finding that a lot of companies coming to us now and going, geez, we haven't seen each other face-to-face for two years or we're just coming back together. Yeah, we really want to get you in and we really want to cement where we are as an organisation. A lot of it's that good to great. You know, How do we get from this stage where we, we, we think we're doing pretty well, but we want to get to the next level? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like, so even now, people coming back into the office, people who've worked together for two or three years and they haven't spent any time with each other. It's uh, it's such a different dynamic. We're seeing that at the moment. Again, getting everybody into one office, and um, most of the time, people are loving it. And the other time, people are like, "Whoa, I'm quite used to the peace and quiet," you know. Or uh, it's uh, it's a funny one, but I think we'll get uh, like the the businesses that that get that new way of working down pat and uh, efficient and and meaningful will I think be the ones that really really go to the next level um so outside of sport um and and the business coaching um just looking more kind of like uh, holistically at, at life what are the what are the habits or daily routines that um that Paul Roos does to to keep on top of his game yeah I learned to meditate about 20 years ago so that's that's a non-negotiable so getting up early meditating yeah, which allows you to be really present. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest challenges for people in the world today. Mm-hmm. You know, mobile phones, yeah, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, you know, text messages, phone calls. You know, that happens throughout the whole day, meetings, you know, like, yeah, I think that's a big thing for me. How do you remain grounded and present? So, yeah, meditating for the last 20 years certainly really, really helps. Um, exercise, yeah, I, I like going for a walk or a run. Yeah, and I don't run long distances. I've sort of learned that with my body, but you know, I get out and run 15, 20 minutes, run really hard, do like a yeah, you know, good good session. That's really – and eat relatively healthy. But I think eating is an interesting one. I think, you know, I, I just look after what I eat. You know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a 10 out of 10, but I'm certainly, you know, mid five, six, seven. But I always give myself a treat or whatever. You know, like I think I, – I look at diets and I think some of the diets that people go on, they're, they're just impossible – to follow, yeah, and what happens at the end of the diet? People go, oh, thank God, I finished that diet. 
you know, now I'm going to go and get a pizza and a beer and, you know, then away you go again. So yeah. I think I think in moderation, you know, I live my life, you know, I enjoy myself, but I'm conscious of, of exercising, I'm conscious of what I eat and the meditations are sort of non-negotiable. Yeah. Do you find um, do you find that everything gets easier after the meditation? It's, uh, it's very um, – I've heard from a lot of people on the show, but also just through reading that the meditation is that kind of first level of self-respect throughout the day, and then that kind of has the domino effect of, of positive change post the meditation. Yeah, 100%. I, I think so. I think just – it sort of almost sets your day up, sets your intentions, grounds you for the day, um, because most people sort of get up, check their mobile phones, you know, three or four messages. So, yeah, I didn't care. I mean, you know, look, you can meditate any time of the day. I wouldn't discourage it at any time, but certainly if you can get into a routine of just getting out of bed, yeah, it might only be five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you want, clear your head, focus, and then away you go for the day. It's a really good way to set up your set up your day it's great hearing um sports people and people who've been uh, in the rough and tumble of the likes of afl and ruby d coming out and, and and speaking about meditation and the importance of taking care i think there is sometimes still a bit of a taboo around guys looking after themselves and and looking after their mindset and uh, i think we're hopefully surely getting through the other side of that now with people speaking out and just talking that it should be it's 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 a huge tool uh, in order to to help the quality of life yeah, hundred percent. Again, we talk to leaders a lot. You know, just look after yourselves first and foremost. You know, if you, it, you know, if it, it, it's hard to look after other people within the business if you can't look after yourself. So don't. That's not selfish. So take some time in the day. You know, give yourself some time. Whether that's walking the dog, you know, taking the kids to school, going to a cafe with your partner, whatever that might look like. Please look after yourselves. You know, I think that's become really, really important, and never been more important than it is at the moment, really. Yeah, for sure. Um, Paul, the last question that I ask all of our guests is, um, how would Paul Ruse define resilience? Just keep moving forward. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Like, keep moving forward um, because really you've got no alternative. You know, you can sort of stop and um, reflect, which you do when things bad happen. But I think what I've learned over time, control what you can control and just keep at your own pace. Just keep get out of bed, one foot forward. Yeah, you know, simply if you've had a real something really bad, it might be just getting out of bed, going downstairs. But just keep those little steps, keep moving forward, keep reaching out to people, keep asking for help, and and people are there to help you. But just one step at a time, that's resilience. Keep moving forward. That's what I, that's what I would say. Keep moving forward. That is loud and clear, and I think it's great advice to to all of our listeners. Paul Roos, thank you very much for joining the Building Resilience podcast. I've enjoyed every minute of our conversation, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Good chatting to you. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. I want to say a huge thank you to Paul Roos. I really appreciate your time in the conversation today. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. If you'd like to know more about me or Securo, you can head to securo.io. Securo. Trust tomorrow. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out one of our other podcasts? Like Strive Stronger with Andrew May. Listen in as Andrew May explores the latest and greatest in human performance. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts or head to afternoonsport.com. Afternoon Sport.